an interesting interview for me. I'm talking with John Williams. Um, John is actually an Australian living in New York who's been living, he's left Australia only just a couple of years before I did. Um, and he runs a pretty interesting organization which is pretty low profile called the CTO Club in New York City, which is a collection of the top CTOs in New York. And they kind of get together and meet and talk about stuff. Um, John has been a CTO in a number of uh, fairly well-known internet organizations, and maybe he'll tell us a bit about that. And so, John, thanks for joining us. Uh, pleasure. My pleasure. Um, tell us a little bit about you. Where, where did you, you – you said you're Australian, but um, and I, I know you've, you've got the, the accent as well, but tell us a little bit about where you grew up in Australia and where you're from. Sure. Uh, I grew up in uh, Melbourne, Australia, which is the south coast, but really more like the north coast of the United States. I uh, went to Melbourne High School and Melbourne University and got my first uh, technology job as a C programmer, uh, programming in C, a language not used today, but uh, that's what I started on in the 80s and uh, actually joined a, a startup. I was the number 11 employee at a company called Cyber Graphics that made computer systems for newspapers. Cool. And... Um what, what made you move to the States? Uh, so, you know, we were, we were always looking for different tools for, uh, for building uh, computer systems. We were looking for operating systems and compilers and other tools to help us build software. And all of the vendors that I was using were based in the U.S. And I came over on a business trip in uh, 1984 and uh, I um, actually had my first visit to Disneyland, uh, which was might sound odd, but it was a dream. So I no, I know. I mean, I, that was growing <laughs> up in Australia. All that stuff, like the A Team and all of that stuff, was pretty important. Knight Rider yeah. and Disneyland and <laughs> exactly. And it wasn't. It was unlike the internet today, where we didn't have that ready access. So it was hard for us to imagine what it was like in the United States. So I went to Disneyland and had a fabulous experience. But then I went to the real technology Disneyland, which is Silicon Valley. And I spent three days in Silicon Valley talking to a bunch of vendors and said to myself, oh, my goodness, I was born in the wrong country. This is my dream, to work with all of these companies. And so you were in Silicon Valley in 1986? 84. 84. Yeah, talking to vendors to select tools. And I got more done in uh, three days in Silicon Valley than I spent a year trying to research tools in Australia, again, before the internet. Hmm. So, but you moved to New York. Yeah, so I went, well, I went back, and then a couple of years later, my boss said, we're opening an office in the United States, would you like to go? I said, yes, in two minutes. <laughs> and I knew I was moving to a place called Manchester, New Hampshire. I thought it was going to be like California. So that's like right next door to Silicon Valley then, huh? <laughs> no, that's on the other coast. That's actually all the way up in New England. And I knew, I, I knew it was, you know, in a different place, but I just assumed the whole of the U.S. was going to be like California, kind of a naive Australian at that time. So I ended up on the East Coast, spent two years in New Hampshire, two years in Boston, and then by 1990 finally found my way to New York, where if you come from another country, New York's probably the best place to be in the United States. I'm interested you say that. Why do you say that? Because it's a, it's a real melting pot of people from uh, around the world and actually around the country. There isn't, I find there's no colloquialism in New York that you have to be from New York, whereas I find in other areas of the United States there's kind of a cast about whether you come from that area or not. Whereas New York, you know, it's, you, you, it's really people of the world who live in New York. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's something I've liked about the city, too. Um, you, you grew up in Melbourne. I grew up in Hobart, so we're about an hour plane flight away. Yeah, and I guess Melbourne would be like Boston, and then Hobart, Hobart would be like Cleveland from a size point of view, right? Uh, I, think, that's, I think that's being generous, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right, so, um, so you moved to New York, and, I mean, you start working... You're working in tech stuff, how did you decide to be a T CTO? When did you first become a CTO? So um, I, didn't, I didn't first decide to become a technology manager. I was actually promoted a few times um, and demoted. So I was a really <laughs> bad manager. 
right. back in the beginning of my management career. And I, I was a lead developer who had no people skills. And, uh, you know, one day I woke up and, and figured, oh, gee, I don't have any people skills. <laughs> I better do something about that. So, uh, and, I, and I had some, some great managers and mentors and started to learn from them how to manage people and teams and realized that as a lead developer, I could only get so much done. You know, I, I was working at that time seven days a week and I couldn't, I could only get a finite amount of stuff done. And when I started leading teams, I could get a lot more stuff done. And that was my motivation to become a CTO. So um, what was, how did you do that? I mean, you don't just like get people skills overnight. What did you do from, to, to, to learn to lead teams? Um, I had a, a patient um, boss who I was able to work with on how to deal with, my, with staff. Uh, I went to some communication courses. Uh, actually went to one communication course, which was really interesting, which actually had a segment about nonverbal communication, which as a technologist with a scientific background, I thought, well, that's insane. There's no such thing, you know. But realizing that, you know, there's empathy, facial expressions, posture, and, and, and other things which are really important elements in communication. You know, and I, and I guess what I realized is I realized that um, I didn't have good sensitivity skills to what my technology teams were thinking and feeling. So what I started to do is I started asking them what they thought and what they felt. And then that was really the build-up towards becoming a uh, effective manager. Hmm. And so... How long did it take you to become a, a good manager? Oh, that's quite embarrassing. <laughs> it, uh, it probably took um, five years uh, to go from bad to okay, and then, you know, been refining those skills ever since. I would say I'm, I'm still perfecting my management skills. I think I'll, I'll never be done. Hmm. And so what, how, how big are the teams you've managed? I uh, started with a team of 15 uh, developers, uh, all developers. I was doing all the sysadmin and DBA work myself. And then uh, I've gone right up to uh, close to 100 uh, teams of 100 people where I'm really managing people who are managing people. Then it's a whole different different thing. And you mentioned like um, when you started asking the teams how they... Uh, how they thought and felt, but what happens if they're not, they don't tell you or they don't tell you the truth? Um, well, you can only go by what they say, so you really, you know, you, you, you have to, you have to, first of all, the relationships are based on trust. Right. So you have to believe what they say, but you, 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 you take a point of view about it. So you may, you know, in, in a particular conversation, you may, may say, well, that, that doesn't sound right. Or I'm not, it's not making sense to me. You know, there are safe ways to tell people that, you know, you don't believe them or it's not. Or you, you, you can make it objective and say, well, that, that's hard to believe instead of making it personal. Um, you know, and, the, and the, other, the other tool is really not just communicating one-on-one with them, but helping them communicate uh, with each other then you're getting other sources of information about your teams. And, and uh, you know, it's important to hear back-channel what's going on with your teams as much as it is to hear from them directly. How do you get that through the back-channel? Uh, getting it from uh, other, other team members. Uh, you know, as long as you're creating trustful relationships and, uh, you know, not betraying confidences and not playing people off of each other, you know, you'll find that, you know, everyone has a focus on, on, on people working together and getting things done right, and so they'll be happy to communicate with you when they hear about other people's concerns. I, think, I, I find people are more than happy to pass along uh, when someone is not happy or they have concerns. So you just have to be an open door and, and, and make that okay for people to pass that along to you. Hmm. Interesting. Um, and what, so what other courses or materials did you study to, 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 to develop this? You know, I, I wish I could you, tell you. I mean, a lot of guys who run companies, 
it's 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 an area that they're it's fairly easy for them, and it's interesting in your case as someone that it wasn't easy for that you've actually had to go and learn it. Yeah, and, uh, and I mean, I, the other reason I ask is because I'm not the world's best manager either, and this is something I need to learn too. Yeah, and it's you know I I have an opinion on it that the technologists are typically not good at this. It seems the the people who are good at programming computers and being very focused on a single task in technology and all of that abstraction outside the real world seem to be, as a generalization, not to be the best managers. Although open source is changing that, and I love to get onto that topic as well. But back to, you know, the starting point was realizing that I wasn't a good manager and that there were people to learn from. Uh, and, and, and I found that the small, I, I did some management, uh, someone recommended a management training course at a, a college uh, in New York, can't remember exactly what it was, but it was an after work management training program uh, that I did for 12 weeks, uh, one evening a week, you know, and, and it's really the discussion about management as a topic and realizing that in, in itself is a discipline, that was really the breakthrough. Me. Up until that point, I thought people did management just naturally, and then I realized, like I guess anyone who does an MBA would know, that management is a discipline that you need to learn and that there are techniques and approaches and models to doing it. Hmm. Interesting. There are, right, lots, so, of, there are um, lots of classes, and I, I mean, the, the, you can get access, including online, and I think it's just a discussion with others on what management is about. Yeah, right. Okay, um, so tell me tell me a little bit about your uh, companies you've worked at, and I mean, you, I know you worked at iVillage. Um, what are some of the other companies you've been CTO of? Uh, yeah, I was CTO at iVillage, part of NBC Universal. Before that, I was uh, CTO at uh, Kaplan Test Prep and Admissions, uh, a division uh, of uh, the Washington Post. Uh, Washington Post uh, is doing north of $2 billion in revenues, and over half of that is coming from the Kaplan group of companies. So the Washington Post realized back in the 80s that uh, traditional media may be in trouble in the future, and they diversified their portfolio into education. Mm-hmm. So that's why they acquired Kaplan. And uh, at Kaplan, uh, I was doing a lot of work. Uh, we had uh, a lot of our sales were done through our website, so we had a significant e-commerce component. Plus, every one of our students, uh, while most of them were studying in a classroom with a teacher, all of our students had online learning assets. So we were doing a lot of work in uh, e-learning and the online learning space. And I really enjoyed that, a really, really, really interesting space for technology. Mm. So those have been the main two, um, Kaplan and... and uh, uh, before that, uh, I spent a couple of years at Gray Healthcare running a digital division uh, of theirs, working with pharmaceutical companies on websites. Uh, before that, I was a consulting CTO for uh, large companies like Time Warner, Scholastic and Oxygen Media, and then a whole bunch of startups back in the dot-com, most of which are not around. Some are still around. Did some work with... Uh, Bluefly, which is an online retailer and uh, an email marketing company called Bigfoot Interactive that's now Epsilon. Uh, and then uh, back in 1997-98, uh, I was the CTO at uh, uh, one of the first uh, Silicon Alley companies to go public uh, called N2K that ended up merging with CD Now and ended up getting folded into Bertelsmann. Hmm. And before that, I was CTO at a company called Interactive Imaginations, which was a top 12 website, number one website in gaming, and uh, uh, eventually got folded and became part of 24-7 media. So I've been working uh, uh, on the Internet or uh, on Internet-related products since uh, 1996. Um, So I'm curious, like, the, the startup scene has come and gone and come and gone. I mean... If you're into tech, you're obviously like uh, leading or bleeding edge stuff. Why have you stayed with the bigger companies rather than um, lots of startups over the last 10 years? Yeah, so uh, I started in the startups back in in 96 when uh, the first dot-com wave uh, was was starting. And um, after doing that for a couple of years, 
um, I decided that I wasn't a very good uh, business and stock picker. You know, I'm, I'm the technology guy, not the biz dev or CEO guy. Mm. So I'm not going to be able to tell you who's the next Twitter or who's the next Facebook. So yet I loved it working with those companies, and I decided that uh, if I consulted for those companies, uh, that was the best way to work with many of them, but not have to you know spend the bank on just one of those companies. So while I, while when I consulted for three years, I worked with three large companies. I actually had dozens and dozens of startups that I worked with during that dot com boom time in New York, and and found that incredibly exhilarating but I wasn't prepared to be the entrepreneur myself. Um, after September 11th, uh, I started a family and took a more conservative route getting into uh, large companies. Uh, but frankly, uh, you know, currently I'm currently in transition, and you know, I think there's a, a pretty big possibility that I'll end up jumping back into the startup scene. Uh, it, it feels exactly like 1996 in New York here at the end of 2009. Hmm. Um, I'm, I'm interested to hear you say that. So you, you think the, the way the money's flowing and, and what's going on in the startup community, it's well, you think we're going to see another bubble? Uh, that's what it feels like, and I'm completely comparing it back to when I was, uh, you know, my experience uh, over a dozen years ago. I'm seeing both a lot of startup activity, a lot of, uh, series B and Series C funding to existing uh, companies that have been around for a while, all of whom are making uh, good revenue. And I'm also seeing a lot of digital activity in established and large companies. So I'm seeing it come from all over. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, so I'm interested then to hear, like, can you tell us, um, before we, we go on and talk about CTO Club, tell us a little bit about um, what you do as a CTO. Um, I guess there's some restrictions on what you can talk about with iVillage. Um, if, if you can't talk about specifics from what you did there, can you tell us just a little bit about what a CTO does? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of boil it down pretty simple. What, what a CTO does is they align technology uh, with the business and the, the plans of the business. Uh, what a technologist, what a CTO doesn't do is they don't deploy new technology for technology's sake. They're finding appropriate technologies that match with the goals of the business. So once you do that uh, and coming up with a strategy and a roadmap for technologies that match the business strategy, then the CTO's job uh, is to then put the right teams and processes in place to uh, execute against that plan. I mean, uh, it, it, it's simple. It, it takes a lot of experience and uh, certainly uh, been through my uh, history of trial and errors, uh, but, but that's, that's it. But you're, you're an older CTO, right? I mean, you're, what, 48? Yeah. I'm <laughs> unfortunately one of the oldest guys in the room nowadays. So, so you know, I mean, when you, if you're uh, looking at different opportunities, I mean, um, how... As, as a CTO, guys are going to say, well, I mean, you know, nice guy and all, but he's 48. Like, he's going to, he's going to want to run our site that's going to get 200 million visitors a, a week, and he's going to want to run it on COBOL. Well, that's a little bit unfair. Uh, I, started, <laughs> I started programming in C, uh, and at the time, that was bleeding edge. So that mm -hmm. C, when I started programming, it was like Ruby on Rails. Right. I moved to C++. You know, the last time I coded was just starting to code in, in Java. Uh, and, and I've learned and picked up these technologies along the way. So what, what you will find in, in my history is uh, I was always using the latest technologies. I mean, that's what a CTO needs to do is they need to stay up to speed uh, on what all the recent technologies are. So that's and so that's what you do do is it, I mean and how do you make sure that you're staying up, up to date and then how do you also avoid the the because I mean it can be stuff can technology can come into and be very fashionable for a while and then it just it's later it turns out to be pretty useless but it was just all trendy for a little while right so uh, the way that I stay up to date on technology is through my network 
and, and finding out what other technologists uh, are doing with technology, and that also helps you divine between the fashionable and trendy and the stuff that actually really works. Hmm. So it's your network of other CTOs. You guys talk a lot about what's, what's actually driving value and what's just the latest fluffy thing of the moment. Exactly, and that you know that that's kind of what drove the idea around starting the New York CTO Club, mm, which we're definitely going to get to. The other point I'm interested to ask about is then, given that a, the, the leading edge technology is is critical, if you're working in a startup team, so let's say you're working alongside the CEO of a startup, um, sometimes that fluffy new bleeding edge technology does turn out to be really useful, and if you're using only the tried and true stuff, you might. M- it might be harder for you to work alongside uh, the CEO of a startup. Like, how, do, how, how would you respond to that? And I know I'm asking you tough questions, but I'm, these are the things I'm really interested to understand. Yeah, I, I guess I'm going to challenge the tried and true. You know, I think you're thinking more of a CIO or an IT manager who's a person who's responsible for corporate technology where they get the phone call if systems go down or systems uh, of too high a risk. Uh, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about making sure that, that systems actually work. So you may hear about a brand new technology that will be interesting to see or want to try, but it may not scale. So then you need to share that information with your CEO and say, well, yeah, we can try this, but uh, it will only work to this point. And I think, I, I think, that's where technologists kind of let themselves down, where they'll say no to new technologies because of a reason. What would be better to do is say, yes, but we'll only be able to get to this point. So as long as everyone's fine with, with us reaching some plateau with this technology and that we need to revisit if we have a success, then, then you know, that, that's my rules for adopting new technology. So how would you respond? I mean, um, obviously Twitter had some pretty public scaling issues over the last year. Um, how, how would you respond and how would you have handled that situation if you'd have been CTO of Twitter during that time? Boy, that's a tough question. Um, I've dealt with similar problems uh, of, of, of scaling. Uh, one of the biggest problems I had with scaling was because I wasn't uh, and this was a number of years ago, I wasn't connected with the uh, sales and marketing team on all the traffic deals that they were doing with uh, AOL and Excite and, and all of our other partners around our music website. And my solution uh, at that time was to get connected to that side of the business, get their traffic forecasts, uh, which, was, which allowed me to forecast traffic build to it and get funding from my CEO to build to that, that traffic size. I mean, you know, handling a lot of traffic isn't magic. It's a matter of planning, cost and planning. It's certainly not magic. You know, and, and, and you know, what, what happens at, at companies when they get into the difficulties like Twitter and others do, it's, it's usually for uh, a lack of foresight and planning on what's going to happen next. Yeah, okay. I mean, I wasn't there, so that, that may be out there. Some, sometimes, uh, you know, it could be a, a particular product or a combination of products they were using uh, that they hadn't tested in a particular way or, or something unique they did. I mean, the, the other tenet of building large-scale uh, web properties, you know, we, we didn't have this school 20 years ago when there was no large-scale web properties, is that you've got to test them. You've got to build tools and build testing systems so that you know if you're going to get, you know, floods of hundreds of thousands of users in a matter of minutes, that you've already tested that scenario. One, one interesting post I saw uh, talking about Twitter was because they obviously had extreme scaling issues in a short amount of time with technology that wasn't really capable of scaling for them. And one of the posts I saw was the way the system kind of grew was bit by bit by bit and right. and sort of... They kept patching more things on to the next thing that was needed and solving the next problem as it came up. And because they didn't have time to really step back and solve it from an architectural standpoint, they ended up with a, a very brittle solution, which worked, but the problem was that it was very brittle. And so as different things happened or things needed to be changed, it became even more and more brittle, and, and, and thus it broke down a lot. Right. So what they didn't do is they didn't, they didn't do a process we call refactoring. Right. 
which is coming back. And, and when you're building features into technology systems, you say, well, the best way to do it would be this, but we don't have time, so we'll do it this way instead. And refactoring is taking that time out to come back and do things uh, a, a way that will uh, satisfy scaling issues. And, yeah. and they clearly didn't allocate any planning time to doing that. And now that they've had a very public incident, they've probably got a lot of funding and a lot of executive approval to do exactly that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, and they've made the business work well, hopefully, anyway. It's certainly great. Yeah, and, and it's, you know, it's a good problem to have. You know, I've seen technology teams approach it the other way where they're refactoring all the time and planning for huge business outcomes and overspending, and then the business doesn't match it. And yeah. the business would have been better off spending that money on marketing instead of technology. Yeah, totally. Um, and what's your favorite, like, development environment or, or you know, if you want to build a, 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 a site like that, what are, what are the, what's the platform and languages? I mean, are you a, a Linux guy? Are you running everything on, on a Windows platform? Um, I'm an I'm open source guy. Uh, so I started working uh, seriously with open source in 2004 when I started at Kaplan and started an open source strategy there. Uh, a big advocate of the LAMP stack, uh, but also tracking uh, some of the newer technologies, uh, uh, particularly Ruby on Rails. Uh, very interested to start doing some work with that. I've done some small pilot projects with it, but I haven't done anything major with it yet. Hmm. So you like Ruby on Rails? That's, uh, I interviewed uh, Jason Fried from 37 Signals about, and that was one of the things we talked about. I'm finding people can really do rapid development with Ruby on Rails, you know, that the knock on it is scaling, right. that it doesn't scale. But, you know, the knock on Java back in 1998 that it doesn't scale. You know, all of these new systems don't scale initially until you get enterprise thinking and work on them. And if we take our enterprise technologists and they start to work on Ruby on Rails we're going to solve scaling. It's going to, it's going to get solved, no question. So it's just a matter of, you know, what happens is you get a lot of these younger teams working with Ruby on Rails, not thinking about scaling, and then they just get stuck in a corner and, and you know, have to move off that platform to a Java platform that's known to scale. Hmm. And the, but the irony is that they might not have had the scaling issues had they not started with Ruby on the Rails in the first place and being able to quickly prototype what people needed. Uh, yeah, exactly. But the, if they built in Java, it might have taken them two or four times as long to get there, and the business, you know, the business may have failed in the process. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Cool. So, um, tell us, tell us a bit about CTO Club. It's obviously something that's benefited you. I read on your profile somewhere that you think you wouldn't be the CTO that you are today because of it. So, what does that mean, and what do you guys do? I absolutely wouldn't be the CTO if I wasn't part of it. So, what what happened was. Back when I was consulting um, and I was working with other CTOs and CEOs and, 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 and most of these people didn't know each other and, and they were effectively islands in New York City. And I've done a lot of work in Silicon Valley uh, and all my friends there have people they worked with at Oracle and Sun and Apple and all the, all the other technology companies in California. And when they got stuck on a gnarly technology problem, they call someone up and get advice. And I found that in New York, that that just wasn't the case. You know? So uh, what I did is uh, I was working with Igor Schindel at Pathfinder, and uh, him and I decided to start the New York CTO Club, and we got 15 CTOs in a room uh, over breakfast and just started discussing Technology. I, I bet I can imagine that first time you guys got together. Probably everyone's heads like exploded and they were saying this is the greatest thing ever, right? Uh, not in the first meeting. It was probably the, the part of the problem at the time is we were all told to be secretive about technology. For some reason at that time, it, it was viewed as a competitive advantage not to share what technologies you were using with outside of the four walls of your company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with open source today, that's the complete opposite to what we all do. We're, we're, we're all telling everyone what technologies we use. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, we were just a little cautious at first, but what happened, it was like the fifth meeting. I, I had that head-exploding moment where I found three other CTOs had experience with a vendor that I was actually in negotiations with. 
so here I am talking to three people that had already licensed a product that I wanted to use who were giving me the real-world case of what worked and what didn't work and how to work with this vendor. That was the, that was the breakthrough moment for me. Well, how was that a breakthrough? What did you do differently as a result of, of what those guys told you? Um, I, I had information uh, that I could uh, reflect back to the vendor to um, hold them truthful to their product and their contracts that, that I didn't have prior to that. I was able to sit down with the vendor and say, I'm really worried about X, Y, and Z. That was not information that the vendor had given me. Did the, did the deal go through with that vendor? Yes. And was it a better deal as a result? It was an absolutely better deal, and it was I was actually consulting for the time. My client loved the product and made lots of recommendations for that vendor in the future. Hmm. So it was a good thing for everybody? Absolutely. Were you able to knock the price down as well? <laughs> of course. <laughs> that was part of it. I mean, you know, open source is now, uh, you know, really helping us do that um, on a much larger scale than I did back then. Hmm. Hmm. So you men- you've mentioned open source a few times. Um, are you guys as a group generally using open source a lot? Um, I think uh, open source is really coming back to me as a CTO and what my preferences are, what, what, uh, you know, what's interesting about the New York CTO Club as a group is it's eclectic. We have people from some of the largest companies in New York to some of the smallest. So you're going to find that they all have a different point of view on open source depending on whether they're working for a bank or whether they're working on the latest consumer startup or in a niche industry. Uh, but we do end up talking about open source a lot, for sure. So who, who's in the, the CTO club? Um, it's, uh, so let me talk a little bit more about the club. It's a, uh, it's a non-profit. It's invitation only. So uh, you really need to be introduced via another member to become part of the club. Uh, I have members from uh, AIG, Barnes & Noble, uh, Cablevision, uh Banks like J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, um, Gore Hill. I have members from a couple of museums. And these aren't just CTOs. These are people who have some type of technology management role. Certainly if I had someone from Morgan Stanley, I don't have the number one technologist there. I'll, I'll have someone that's managing a team, you know, between 10 and 100 people on a budget, you know, between, you know, 2 to $100 million in technology spend. So what are, what are your guys like as a group, your total tech, tech spend? Oh, total tech spend. I actually don't have that number, but I, it's got to be in the billions range. We, we recently uh, looked that's at our, That's your number one number, or maybe you guys don't care, but like if you can put on your site, like, you know, collectively we control $2.7 billion of technology spend in the New York area. <laughs> yeah, then, that's, that's interesting because we... we we don't focus on that. We're a private. We, we, you know, you had you had opened in the introduction that we're low profile. That's actually mm-hmm. on purpose. All right. Uh, we, we're we're not a group that's trying to expand or to do anything more with our group. It's really something that individual members benefit from, and there's a trust and a camaraderie between a small trusted group that you don't get when you make it into a bigger group right you know so how does how does one get selected or, or i mean you, you said it through referrals let's say i say well look i want to join now i'm not a cto and i'm not qualified and i'm a nice guy like you, you, how do you say no to me and then how do you decide which other guys do get accepted because that can be a, a you know kind of a complicated issue yeah so you know if you were to ask me to join and say well i'm i'm sorry it's only for ctos or practicing equivalents uh um and you're certainly we, we we get around a little bit by allowing people to come as guests, uh, so they they can they can at least experience and, and make some network connections for a one-time visit. Uh, but we're really looking for people who are similar to the existing members. So that's why we're looking for other members to say, here's a CTO or equivalent that I know, and they're like us, and they're going to be able to. Uh, attend meetings regularly and contribute to our email list. I've had a number of people who wanted to join 
that didn't want to come to our monthly face-to-face meetings. Mm-hmm. They wanted to be virtual, and, and uh, that's not the type of member we're looking for. So they have to be New York City-based then? So New York City-based and uh, regularly attend our, our monthly meetings. You don't have to come to every meeting, but you know, make sure you, know, you don't miss too many in a row. And the reason for that is that these face-to-face meetings is where we've built the trust between the group. And uh, of, our, of our morning meetings, our two-hour meetings, we spend uh, at least an hour of that uh, just having coffee and catching up with each other. You know, that's where the, the real networking happens. Hmm. Yeah, when you just chat about stuff and then serendipity happens and you find out you, you're, you're negotiating a deal with someone, the three guys that have already done the same deal. Yeah, and, and in technology, the equivalent of that is, you know, you're looking at a new uh, content management system and four people have already done an evaluation of all the vendors and when they get back to their desk, they're going to email you their evaluation document. Yeah, right. It's going to save you like four weeks of work. Yeah. Hmm. How big is the CTO club? Uh, we have um, 80 members uh we have uh, it's, it's about 80 plus uh, members. I've had a few members who've moved out of New York, um, and uh, we've actually kept them on the email list. And it's actually a good way for them to stay connected to their New York network. But you really need to have been uh, an attending member first before that happens. Mm. And so, I mean, how many come to a meeting? And you, so, you guys. You, you, it's in a big meeting room. You have a breakfast first and then a presentation. Like, what actually goes on? Yeah, so we have a... Or do you have, like, a secret chant and you light candles? And... <laughs> yeah, we talk Klingon, right? That's, that's what the tech guys do. So I just read an embarrassing story of it. Some tech guy was teaching his kid and only talking to his son in Klingon for the first two years, which was oh, God. completely embarrassing for all of us technologists. <laughs> but... Um, uh, we have a sponsor, so Sun Microsystem has been our sponsor since we started uh, nine and a half years ago. So that means Oracle is your sponsor now? Uh, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that there's, a, there's a lot of things on their plate, and once they sort out what's going on in the EU and what's going on with the staff, hopefully they'll get back to me and we'll be able to sort it out. Uh, uh, I actually know people at Oracle. If you need help with that, let me know. Cool, cool. And I've actually had other companies approach me about sponsoring the New York CTO Club. So people have definitely seen the value of it. And it's interesting because Sun um, doesn't influence the club at all. They're a, 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 a what I would call a um, backroom sponsor where they, they get to observe and they get to see what's said, but they're not contributing. They, they, what, they've, what Sun Microsystems decided was that they would benefit from allowing CTOs to help one another and not intervening in that relationship. But they do come to the meetings? Uh, on occasion, yeah, they, they come. The, the, the guy's usually busy, but they make as many as they can. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's branding, and you know, they know the value in that. And, and, so, and Okay, so you have a sponsor, and then so that pays for a room and breakfast and... Yeah, so we started, we started 7.30 a.m. We're done at 9.30 a.m., so everyone can get back to their desk by 10 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a unique New York thing. You know, if you're trying to do this thing in Boston or L.A. or Chicago, you've got to deal with freeways and all sorts of stuff when you leave a, a networking meeting. Whereas in New York, you know, you're 30 minutes from anywhere from, from the middle of New York. So, and the, the first uh, half of the meeting from 7.30 to 8.30, we're catching up with each other on projects and just general networking. And then from 8.30 to 9.30, we have a different speaker every month. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a club member, about a third of the time. Uh, we, we've had external speakers, um, and uh, we've had speakers like Fred Wilson uh, from Union Square Ventures. We've had uh, Jeremy Allaire, who invented Cold Fusion. Um, so let's say you've got Fred coming in. What does Fred come and talk to you guys about? Uh, usually talking about the, the state of uh, startups and VCs. You know, that's, you know, and we've had him, we, we had him come in the dot com boom. We had him come in 2001 right after the bust. You know, so we're getting different views from him uh, each of these times. Um, and uh, and how, allow, how many of you are there in the meeting? Uh, we usually get about half of us, 40, and we don't allow PowerPoints. So one of the things we do in these meetings is we make them highly interactive. So I, when I prep a speaker for the meeting, I say to them, 
you will be interrupted frequently and often. And you need to go with that. Please prepare a loose agenda and be ready to go where the questions are. And the reason for that is we don't want to hear the fluffy, glossy stuff. We want to hear the real story. Mm. We want to hear what really happened. Right. What was the issue? And how was it dealt with? So, you know, that's one of the differences of the club. And, you know, you were asking me before about Twitter. We had a presentation from someone from uh, Flickr, uh, certainly one of the, the largest websites in the world when it comes to managing media photos online, uh, you know, non-video. And, uh, you know, he was explaining to us how they manage both their development process and their scaling. You know, and they haven't had the same problems. And basically, it's a matter of, of planning was, was what it came down to. And how they dealt, actually, they have a whole system of how they deal with huge traffic influxes and, and what they turn on and off as far as dealing with that. Oh, really? Flickr actually has to deal with that, like, manually? They don't just, like, handle it? Uh, they start, when they first did it, they did it manually. And then what they do, what all of us do, is we set those into automatic triggers. All right. You know, so uh, you know, one of the one of the technologies you'll hear around scaling is caching. Mm-hmm. We have caching. Well, caching gets refreshed, you know, every few seconds from a source. So one of the things you do when you get a lot of traffic is you tell the cache, "Don't refresh. Just keep using what you have in memory, right. and come back to the database, you know, in ten minutes when the database doesn't have to deal with the volume it's dealing with." Yeah, right. And you can you can automate that. But really, what, you know, what, what, what we do in these meetings is we get the real story of what actually went on behind technology. And because it's a safe environment, you know, I find that people are comfortable having those real-world discussions. Their boss isn't in the room, so it's okay for them to talk about what they were challenged with and what didn't work and how they dealt with it. Hmm. And, and so it's up to you to make sure that you get interesting speakers to come so that that keeps in the attention of the CTOs. Yeah, so we're doing two things. Where, where I'm always on the constant lookout for speakers, but I'm also polling members to ask them, you know, what, what topics they're interested in. You know, so, for example, none of them are interested in a presentation on Twitter mm-hmm. right now, but all of them are interested in uh, cloud computing and all the different levels of service coming from the cloud. So if you had someone that came along and spoke to you about Amazon's um, tools in that area, that would be pretty interesting. Yeah, if you happen to know the Amazon CTO, uh, I would most welcome him as a speaker. I don't. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, no, I actually don't know many CTOs, um, so I, I can't help you with that. Um, I'm interested then in um, – well, actually, before we go on, before I change the topic, um, have you heard of an organization called the Research Board? Uh, no, I haven't. They're um, pretty interesting. It's, it was founded, I guess, in the 80s, and it's, it's a group of um, the, the top CTOs in, across, I guess, the US and maybe the world. They only deal with the CTOs who are like the, the really, really big CTOs. I mean, I, and actually, my, I haven't looked at this in like six years, so I'm telling you some stuff that's wrong. Um, but the basic understanding I have of them is it's a, it's a collection of the, the actual ones that have all of the buying power of um, Fortune 500 companies that get together maybe something like once a quarter and invite vendors like Oracle and so on to come in and hear what they do and and, and sort of talk directly and, and it, it provides some influence towards buying decisions. Um, the reason I just am remembering it is because what you're doing sounds a little bit similar um, and they actually have an office in, I think their main office is in New York City. Yeah, we haven't, you know, we've, we've never used the club as an influence tool Mm-hmm. Um, it's really um, one of our philosophies has been the purpose of the club has been about giving. Mm-hmm. So it's about helping others, you know. So that so that that's steered us away from that influence. But you know that 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 may be something we're interested in in the future. Well, yeah. If you do do a search on Research Board, it's just researchboard.com. Um, cool. 
Yeah, and their website actually yeah, it shows the picture of their office that I, wa- I was just walking with a friend and I was like, oh my God, there's a research board that I you know, looked into a few years ago. So on the website it says, the research board is an international think tank headquartered in New York City. Membership is by invitation only and is restricted to chief information officers of the world's largest corporations. Right. Well, it's the chief information officers that have the buying power and it's the chief technology officers who are the ones who are are really more focused on, you know, technology itself. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're really, you'll find CTOs don't have the same buying power as a CIO. So, mm. so how do you guys make sure that you have the right level of influence there, or do you not care? I mean, it, let's say someone comes along to speak to your group, because there's a lot of potential people reading this who would be uh, potential speakers for you if you're interested in, in a business perspective on stuff. They're not going to be the tech guys as, as much, but they will be the business guys. Um, how do they come along? How do they, I mean, how do they know that you, you don't have just you know, 40 guys in the room who each has two guys reporting to them? Uh, I'm just trying to understand the, the question. That, that how, do, how do I make it valuable, or are you talking no, about... No, I mean, the, what's the level of influence and leverage from, from your guys? I mean, do you, do, you don't restrict just to the CTOs of companies, right? You do have guys that are not CTOs. They might just, maybe they're Morgan Stanley. They might be just running a group of 10 people at Morgan Stanley. Right, right. So, so the leverage then that the guy gets to coming in to speak, like how do you, how do you make sure that you're always maintaining a, a high level, and what is that high level you care about? right. So the high, the high level is the knowledge around technology and technology management. So, you know, what, what, what you find is that a, a, a more junior person at, um, at Morgan Stanley uh, or at a large bank, uh, not to pick on any one company, would be closer to the technology and dealing with those technology issues. And, and that's what we say to the speakers. So, you know, a speaker who's going to come in and talk in broad terms about ERP systems, then this is the wrong audience. But a speaker who wants to come in and talk about you know, security and scaling issues with uh, cloud services, then you have exactly the right. No, and I get that, but how, do, how does that speaker know? Let's say there's the best guy in the world on cloud commuting. He's a guy, let's say it's the Amazon CTO who you really want to hear from. How does he know that you guys, like, who do you have in your group and how do you, I, I guess what I'm trying to understand is like the membership criteria. And, you know, if you're, if you're okay to talk about that, how do you do or don't accept someone and maintain a level and what is that level that you care about maintaining? I mean, I go through this with who I select for my interviews. Right. And I'm, I'm extremely picky about it. I'm, I'm interested to understand how you guys deal with that same problem. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting, first of all, we haven't, we haven't found speakers, uh, screening us uh, by general membership population, and, and I never give out a list of, of members, although you know, that's something that you can go and find. Um, uh, what will typically happen is they'll know one or two members, and they'll reach out to them, as we all do now in this new internet world, and ask them what's it like, what, what should I expect, what's the level like, and... and you know, I think as you speak to any member, you'll find, you, you'll hear the same thing over and over. This is a completely unique group. It's very interactive. It's a high level of skill and understanding of technology, and it's very cooperative. Uh, and and what, what we've actually found is we've had a number of speakers who are actually looking to learn something about their technology, and then this is exactly the group. You know, so if, if a speaker is willing to come in and actually have an open dialogue about a particular issue, let's take open source as one example, then this is exactly the, the group that will help shape thinking around that particular technology. Mm-hmm. Um, can you give me more of an idea on who fits the profile as who you'd accept for a member and who doesn't? Yeah, so it's a CTO that's managing, let's say, between five and 100 people, who spends uh, more time thinking about technology architecture and processes uh, around development than they than they spend, say, working with vendors and budgets. Mm. Although we have we have some different people. We've actually had some speakers who have niche technology jobs actually request to join the club after speaking to it, which I thought was really the ultimate compliment. 
and uh, we've accepted a few, a few, uh, a few people uh, of that ilk. How big do you guys plan on getting? Uh, you know, I think what's interesting is we have no plans. We we didn't have any plans from day one, and we're almost ten years in, and we still don't have any plans. Um, you know, our goal is to provide value to our existing members. And, uh, you know, we do that organically and member-led. And while we continue to do that, we've, we'll, we'll, we'll just continue to be successful. We don't have any, any other goals. And I know that, that sounds maybe counter to every other group that you meet, but it's been a successful model for us. Yeah, right. Do you guys ever, like, uh, blackball any, like, vendors that you don't like? Um, we definitely say bad things about vendors that we don't like. <laughs> we definitely do, and that's in our private email list. Right. Um, and you know, if, uh, if if you do, uh, you know, if you do one of these companies with a member wrong, then everyone else is going to hear about it. Mm-hmm. But you know, where you know, technologists, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll judge everything on merits. You know, right. so there's always a, a merit opportunity for every vendor. Hmm. So the main components then of your organization are the monthly breakfast and, 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 and uh, networking for an hour and then the, the meeting with the guys for an hour and then the email list, which is mostly by guys locally, although there's a couple out of town. Are there any other major components to what you do? Uh, the other thing that, that, that's harder to track, uh, but we really promote and encourage members connecting separate from the club, having lunch and breakfast and Often someone will ask a question, and as often as not, they'll get an answer offline from the general email list because it'll be the nature of a private conversation discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we have that. We have that as well. Uh, you know, the, the other area that that comes up is in, in hiring, as well. You know, we want to be uh, cognizant of not poaching each other's technologies team and, and handling that in a delicate and professional manner. Hmm. Yeah, right. Hmm. Interesting. So, um, anything else you want to tell us about CTO Club? Um, you know, I know there's been some other clubs started in other cities, uh, maybe haven't reached the size of, of the group. Uh, a lot of people tell me that's, you know, because you know, New York City makes it easy for people to get together and go back to their, their desk. But I guess what, I, what, what, what I'll say for anyone who's interested in, in, in networking is the CTO Club is just one of many networking organizations. I think for technologists, networking itself has an extremely high value. I find every time I talk to a new technologist about a technology, I am in constant learning mode. Mm. And technologists love to learn, and, and you know there's so many amazing places in New York. The New York Tech Meetup is, is one of those, and, and even if you just start scanning technology groups in meetup.com, there are so many different opportunities to network. SIM in New York and the tri-state area is another technology networking group uh, open to all. There are just many, many opportunities, and every team that I've ever worked with and every team that I've run, I've always encouraged them to network as much as possible. Yeah, because that adds a lot of value. Okay, so um, the other area that I'm interested to ask you about is for potential uh, guys who are going to make startups that are business-type guys that want to find a CTO-type co-founder. How would you suggest is the best way to approach that? Oh, my. That's a hard question. Um, you know, I think there are. What have you types. seen that's worked? What have I seen that that, that have worked? Is is it's it's usually been through a personal connection. You know, that that CEOs and 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 the the model I think that works best is to find someone that you worked with in the past. Mm-hmm. That that's the absolute best model because then you know what you're getting. You know the relationship, you know, if the relationship is all done, then if you're a startup CEO or executive, you know, find someone that either you've worked with in the past or someone you trust has worked with in the past. Um, you know, if, if that's not available to you for timing or whatever reason, you know, the next way is, you know, to get out to these networking events and just meet as many CTOs as possible uh, you know, New York Tech Meetup is one of them, and and start to meet them, and and 
you know, find the one that's right for you. So, like, at your, you, of your group of 80 guys, how many of those guys want to go and make startups? Just, uh, you know, uh, probably uh, uh, of the existing group, uh, we probably have, you know, about eight of them in startups. So it's only a fraction. Most of them have uh, corporate jobs. And is that where most of them want to be? They, they want to stay in big corporate jobs? Um, it depends. I think we go through cycles. You know, we... we um, the, the, the thing, the difference between the, the startup and, and a corporate job is risk reward. Mm-hmm. You know, the corporate job is much more risk, and for CTOs like me, uh, you know, as you get older, you, you know, you're looking to have less risk. It's really the, the the early CTOs who are more willing to take the risk. You know, one, one model that I've seen work well that I like, uh, that I contribute to, is um, CEOs having a seasoned CTO or technologist advising them and helping them select a young CTO. And I think that's a great model because you can basically grab any technologist you know from any company and buy them breakfast, lunch, or dinner and, and, and email them and pick their brain while you know they're getting paid in their day job and get them to advise you on how to approach technology for your new startup. So you guys, what you're saying is that you guys can effectively take um, sharp tech guys and turn them into CTOs. Yes. Hmm. You know, help, help. You know, one of the things you'll find between a seasoned CTO and a and a, and a, a sharp tech guy who's becoming a CTO is the seasoned CTO has the network and knows when and how to ask for help. Right. Whereas the young sharp guy thinks that they thinks or their only thing they have in their toolkit is solving every problem themselves. Yeah, right. You know, so what, what's interesting when you see these companies running into scaling issues, have they talked to five other people who've had these problems before? The thing about technology is in almost every case, someone else has had this problem before you had it, so go, go and talk to them. Yeah, no matter how, how new and on the, on the edge you think you are, there's, there's other guys that are going to be, have dealt with a problem in some context or another. You know Exactly. Yeah, people, everybody thinks they're all a unique special snowflake, but <laughs> they, they, they often aren't. <laughs> Yeah, and that, and that, you know, when I'm advising a young, a young CTO in a startup, I'll be like, oh, tell me the problem. Oh, you know, go talk to so and so, or go research that, or let me make an introduction here. You know, and 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 technologists find that when they help others, you know, they're almost always getting something in return. That's not the motivation for it. Uh, you know, and, and this is something CEOs do really well. And I think CTOs kind of lag in realizing that this is a valuable job skill. Yeah, right. Has it helped you in your career that you, you have the CTO club behind you? I mean, when, when you're looking to work with a new company and, and they know that you, you have this at your back, does that kind of does that assist you? It does. You know, I, I, I make sure to mention it when uh, I'm talking to companies. Uh, and, and, you know, more than that, it's it, it's helped me in some jams. You know, I had a jam. Uh, this was back a few years ago. I had a jam with an expert. I was having problems with that worked for me in a particular system. This was quite a number of companies ago, and I had a jam on a Friday. And uh, through the uh, New York CTO Club, by Monday 9 a.m., I had an expert sitting in my office working with me on the solution. Hmm. I wouldn't have had that if I hadn't have been a member of the New York CTO Club. Hmm. Interesting. Um, anything you want to tell us about which we haven't talked about? Um, I'm a big advocate of open source, and uh, I'm really fascinated with how open source is changing the nature of technology teams, turning them into networkers. You know, I think 20 years ago, if I had told people when I was interviewing for jobs that I was a heavy network of people person, they wouldn't have <laughs> believed that I was a good technologist. They would have come up and wanted to hug you, and and and, and you'd be like, I don't hug, and and now you're a Mr. Networking, Mr. Mr. Touchy Feely Manager guy. <laughs> exactly. Twenty years ago, everyone wanted the technologist that you stuck in a closet and passed notes under the door with a broomstick. Yeah. You know, and open source has changed our view on that. We realized that. You know, put two of these people together or put three of them together and magic happens. Have you had uh, Richard Stallman come along to speak? No. Uh, 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 what's his name again, I'm sorry? Richard Stallman. 
from where's he from? Uh, from GNU. He's he, oh. he the guy that invented the GPL. Oh, cool. We would love to have him speak. He's up in uh, in Boston. Cool. I've had um, I had um, Matt Acey, uh and uh, John Newman from Alfresco. I did some work with them. They've come and talked about open source a couple of times to the group. No, I'm not familiar with them. I, I probably do know a bunch of people that I can help uh, get you speakers for if you're interested. Sure, you know, and it, it's, you know, we find, you know, people that want, speakers who want something different, you know, that they, they may be sick of doing the broadcast mm-hmm. uh, meeting, and plus, you know, it, you know, some of these speakers will have a meeting with three or four people in a company and have a great interactive, but this is an interactive with 40 people, which I think is unique. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about? No, I think that's good. I, I, I think I've probably talked too much. <laughs> you, you did a good job. Thanks very much for your time. Hey, great. Uh, uh, great to speak to a fellow, uh, fellow Aussie. <laughs> okay, thanks.